Alright, welcome back to Tech Believe, the podcast about writing science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Dr. Nefarious. And I'm your co-host, the Lonesome Comrade. Alright, so let's get into our second episode here on missiles. So today, we are going first over how to defend against them. And I'm going to start with a story that may or may not be apocryphal, Hmm. but... Our story starts in the Israeli desert. So, yes, uh, shortly, very, very shortly after the beginning of, uh, or sorry, after the end of World War II, people had discovered the shape charge and put them into things like the Panzerschreck and the Bazooka. And I think pretty much we all know how devastating those were in in the war. Mm Mm-hmm. When you can take out a Tiger II with um, something an infantryman can ca- can carry, the uh, costs age about thirty bucks. Yep, uh, the age. Well, before the military industrial complex gets involved, anyway. <laughs> but but once once that happens, the age of armor is kind of on its way out, or so we thought. At the <laughs> end of World War II, there were several different tank programs that went almost immediately into production. We're talking like the 1950s. All of these projects had one thing in common, and that is they were extremely light-skinned tanks with very, very fast engines and very low profiles. They were effectively... uh, what's, What's the gaming term here? Tanking on stealth and speed. Uh, so Last they were kind of going, yeah, they were going for the dex build, because okay. frankly, they were all still rolled homogenous armor, and when you have nothing but steel armor, no cage armor yet, no, well, we we kind of had slat armor, but I'll I'll get into that later. That's a, a mm-hmm. whole different thing. But when your armor is only steel and you have nothing else to protect you, no explosive reactive armor, any stray rocket can utterly annihilate you. Yeah, because sure. speed is your only armor, just yeah. like the British battlecruisers. Yeah, because the the number one, the penetration of these things is de- dependent only on the diameter, not on how much oomph you put into actually making it go forward. So you can make it a very small package as, as opposed to something like a cannon. So, ergo, how do you protect against something like that? You make them harder to hit or harder to see. Mm -hmm. So that was the first chapter after World War II. Shape charges have come in. They can utterly annihilate anything in armor. And there is no way to stop them. Scene open Israeli desert. After I think this was... I'm not really all that well versed on Israeli history. So forgive me. But this was after one of the first, the very first wars that they had there. One of the captured Russian tanks they were shooting at in the desert, they were doing some testing, and they noticed that when they hit the ammo racks, and when the ammo racks exploded, the tanks would actually take less overall damage. And the reason for that is, if you'll remember last time when we were talking about the uh, the jet, the high-velocity super plastic jet coming out of the, uh, the shape charge... Yeah. If you have a uh, explosive 
firing at that, putting force against that, it can disrupt that jet and basically make it ah, shotgun. Yeah, it shotguns against the side of the tank. So instead we accidentally of, discovered reactive armor. Right. Now, this story may or may not be apocryphal. Uh, that I don't know. Uh, but what we can say is that reactive armor kind of got was slow to catch on in the West, uh, but the Russians kind of took off with it. And this is kind of our first real, or first, second, depending on what timeline you're, you're talking about here, but first real main way to defend against shape charges. Um, that's the reactive armor. Now yeah, that has... It's not just making your armor thicker yep. or changing the slope, the two things that had been uh, most helpful in defeating kinetics before this. Yep. Now... Shape charge or uh, reactive armor has gotten a lot better. The current versions actually have a steel plate on top and are designed in a way to basically project that steel plate up at an angle when it fires off so that the jet is actually trying to penetrate down the side of the plate. So you're tr really trying to mm -hmm. cut through like, you know, 200 millimeters of of steel plate when the steel plate itself is only like a millimeter thick. <laughs> so, and then of yeah, course you no, also have basic the basic reverse card, except yeah. the, the speeds that everything is happening at. And Oh yeah. Mind boggling speeds. We're, we're, we're talking yeah. visible UNRWA radiation from acceleration on some of these <laughs> things. So yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think that was, like, I have only ever encountered this concept in science fiction. Yeah. So, that's our first main form of defense. Uh, after that, or possibly before it, I'm not real sure on the timeline. Uh, mostly because these timelines are kind of, what's the word, iffy? Because they're of the classified status of everything. The second yeah. main is ceramic armor. Now, if you'll remember last time when we were talking about uh, shape charges and how they penetrate, they rely on that property of steel under high pressure to go undergo super plasticity. Well, mm -hmm. these ceramic armors don't do that. So while they have uh, comparable or even better um, strength as opposed to like a rolled steel armor as for, you know, calculate calculating when you're just just have like a, a solid projectile coming in but where they really shine is their increased uh, defense against shape charges because of that lack of the super plasticity sure so say let's say ceramic armor that has you know 800 millimeters of protection against you know a solid projectile will have something more like 1,200, 1,100 millimeters of protection against shape charges. So, so you're not getting the super plasticity from the ceramic, but um, right? How 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 dangerous is the uh, is that mass nonetheless? Like, is that turn turning into like high velocity powdered shrapnel inside the vehicle? Oh yes, yes. Just like okay. just like the steel, it'll 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 do that as well. Uh, it'll shatter it more than it will. All it yeah. would be more of a problem with. Uh, a ceramic alloy of any kind. Uh, kind of. I mean, there's ball liners in most tanks, but yeah, it's it's still going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. um, okay. 
But also, most most tanks have like a steel backing and then their ceramic armor, and the ceramic armor itself is it's wedges and blocks of steel armor and ceramic armor, and all of this is very classified. And sure, some of them yeah. even have like gaps in the armor, like air pockets, like to kind of protect against. Our third main method of defending against shape charges, which is uh, shape, uh, spaced armor. So, concept for space armor is very simple. You know the the shape charges, how they have that jet. Well, once yeah, that jet detonates, that. yeah, it basically has a certain amount of space that it will go through, and then it's dead. So, what shape uh, spaced armor does is it causes those warheads to detonate early, or in the case of cage armor, to even capture them. In some cases. So that, yeah. So that is the cheapest and most, uh, uh, what's the word here, resource efficient way of, of dealing with these things. But what happens if you have, say, a smart missile that's being fired at you that can track its target and find a weak point because somebody is aiming it at it and it has a laser designator on it? Well,. Russians I mean, kind of got to the to the solution first, and that is the active protection system. And I was going to say IR smoke. You just shed IR smoke. It disrupts yes. all of the tracking designators, but we can't yes. go to the cooler shit. Well, that, that, that is actually part of this, because there are several different types of active protection system as well, but they all have something in common. They are actively seeking to interfere with the missile's guidance system or to actively destroy it. And that difference is the difference between a uh, passive and an active uh, active protection system. So a passive system would be something like, I believe, the, the Shorta that is on most of the Russian tanks. So have you ever seen, you know those Russian tanks, how they have like those two big lamps that, make it, that look like eyes on the front of their tank? Yeah. Okay, those are a uh, passive active protection system. And what those are, are basically giant flood lamps to blind incoming missiles. Yeah, like and that's all it that is. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly what they are. So if you've got working night vision, you can also use them as flood flood lamps if you're doing something at night. Yep. So that is. Yep. So that is the simplest way. Uh, but the Russians also came up with a quite a clever solution. Not quite sure it's the simplest. But it's actually actively shooting down missiles. So, it's literally just like it says. It's a radar that detects incoming missiles. And then a shot, either a shotgun or a grenade launcher that will shoot down a missile automatically. But so, for like a grenade launcher, are we talking about like um, custom fusing? Yes. Uh, so, there's actually... The yeah, so there's a couple different types of that as well. Uh, so the types that fire grenades can either have fragmentation, which will go in and actually actively you know, destroy the missile, blow it up, early detonation and all that. Some others are require a little bit more lead time, but they shoot out a smoke grenade, which will obscure your tank and cause the missile mm -hmm. to go off track. So just like that IR smoke. Yeah. Yep. I'll just... Having a, having smoke cans mounted on the outside of the hull is so much more simple. Yeah. But I, 
And just I asked about custom fusing because like the level of uh, like the the speed of math that's required to oh yeah for these systems to perform, and the level of technology that they're doing it with is pretty fucking impressive. Yeah, especially since we're accustomed here in the Imperial Court of thinking of the USSR as being relatively technologically backwards. Yeah, which is. There's an important distinction where a lot of the approaches the USSR took were from an engineering perspective designed in order to simplify things, both for manufacturing and for distribution. Yeah. But, like, that's... That's not really technologically backwards. It's uh, <laughs> not having not having such a dedication to feeding your military-industrial complex that you would rather spend $300,000 on a pen than use a pencil. Yeah, like the classic example. There's one of the things about Soviet engineering, especially late period Soviet engineering, when they are mostly building military technology that they like NATO know is not actually going to stand up to the test. I find yeah. that extremely cool. Well, I mean, like the, what what really what really gets me is the MiG thirty one. I, I, I freaking love the MiG thirty one because it is such an absurd piece of engineering. It's oh the, yeah, that one that uh, that uh, you sent the video about. Yeah, it it's it, a cool story. It's the fastest like combat aircraft in ever to be flown, but it does that by having to replace its engines with every time it goes that fast. It's absolutely insane. Well, the fun thing, yeah, no, that's it's incredible. It's extremely Soviet, but like it just um, it takes the World War II experimental rocket engine planes, and then what if we built the jet? So it was more expensive. That ruined itself. Yeah. God. But I mean, Combat you got to shoot down those. So uh, yeah, I mean, you got to shoot down those nuclear uh, strike bombers coming though. So. I mean, look. If I if I honestly thought that another nation was going to be using something like the Valkyrie against me, like there is very <laughs> little that I wouldn't try to stop it. <laughs> God, the Valkyrie is um, another insane piece of engineering too. But uh, yeah, well, I mean, it dovetails into the whole like Cold War slash rocket propellant slash aircraft development stuff that we were talking about before recording. Speaking like, of, let's get to that because I want to hear about this. So go ahead. Okay. Well, so there's enough material that I could try to do a pod, like a sub series for the podcast for this, and we were talking about maybe trying to do that. Um, but just real quick, so there's like this entire rabbit hole about propellant development and i'm not sure like i know the ussr was doing stuff like this too but uh, on the nato side um there are um like a portion of rocket fuels for things like icbms um which are coincidentally also the kind of rocket engines you use to get things into space for the space program you need to have basically an agent that goes into the reaction area that makes everything more dense it amplifies uh the reaction and the thrust that you get out of it allows you to shape it better and the chemicals that were used for this were just stuff like straight up, like like um, powdered uh, powdered lead or lead vapors or merc like powdered mercury, just being dumped into the rocket, um, the reaction area. So it's igniting; it's getting pushed out everywhere. There's test stands in Aberdeen where you can't go without hazmat gear anymore. But the more important part, just like with the nuclear tests, all of that shit was just being vented into the atmosphere, into the neighborhoods that are around that area, and. Um, it just being vented into the atmosphere out at White Sands as well, but there were fewer people li 
happening out there except for the base personnel. So basically, it's just an entire story about poisoning the biosphere in order to have like cheaper reagents in your rocket reaction. Um, nowadays, we use uh, much more expensive chemicals that are dangerous in different ways, um, but also are a lot more predictable. Um, a lot of a lot of stuff in chemistry is a lot more synthetic now, and like we're sort of pushing the edges of my my like actual experience in the science of chemistry and rocket engines. Um, the much more important part, just like the jet developments, like all of this ties back into the politics, the both the public politics, sort of like the politics of the nation and society, but also the power struggle, the internal politics of the various agencies conducting the research and like the various like figures within them that are struggling with each other for personal power in sort of like a, a personal political layer. So you've got three different layers of what you could arguably call politics all interacting. And just like with every other big important strategic uh, development project during the Cold War, like they all get so tied together that like it's not only is it difficult without access to all of the classified information to sort of piece it together. But even with theoretical perfect access to all of the government records, like most of the motivations and most of the reasons why certain projects are approved and others aren't are like they're, they're personal or, or they're the kind of personal that's just business, basically. The, the two layers of politics that aren't the public poli uh, politics of the nation and the society. So it becomes this great, this fascinating, like, uh, like furball of uh, you got chemistry, you got engineering, you got finance, you got political struggles uh, between public groups, you've got personal political struggles between people. It's, it's a whole fucking mess, and it so all revolves around poisoning people, just like every, just like the last digression from the last episode about. Uh, about how the Korean War was deliberately engineered from both sides for independent political reasons. Like, everybody stuck in the middle is being poisoned and bombed. In this case, it's mostly poisoned because most of the bombs didn't fall that these projects were designed to deliver, fortunately. Yeah. And so we just get... It, it all comes down to, actually, humans. Not all of humanity, but humans are the real monsters. Yeah, just... Just in general. Or, well, I, I don't know if I would say humans, but power structures at least, at the very minimum. Yeah, I mean, you get into a, like, you rapidly get into sort of like a philosophical or like a value judgment space where individuals, individuals get pulled into or they throw themselves into, and there's usually some extent to which both are true. Yeah, uh, these kinds of struggles, and they become changed by them. Yeah. Um, All right. So now that we've talked a little bit about the propellants, let's actually talk about the actual propulsion systems. Specific. Yeah, specifically, let's talk about missiles as we transition back into space. So. Uh, I would really like to go to space someday. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've seen this this show, and, and probably not a lot of people have, but it's one of my absolute favorite shows. It's uh, Banner and Crest of the Stars. There's like four seasons. Um, but they have this interesting take on, on missiles. So, the main missiles are fired from railguns. So they have an explosive warhead 
a penetrator and they're fired from rail guns. Like as an initial boost. Yeah, and then they're guided. Yeah. So it's that guided project railgun projectiles. So. Well, of course. I mean, if you were going to build an entire railgun, you have the technology to be able yeah. to guide the shells in flight to some extent. So you might as well use it. But that's only part of the of the uh, the thing here. So in space, you can turn your rocket on, and then you can turn it off, and you'll keep going, just sure. in that direction in perpetuity. So if you want to going stop, you actually have to have reverse thrusters. Now, on most missiles as we know them, they don't. We don't really want them to stop. Yeah. Right. But in Crest and Banner of the want to be able to change them a little. Yep, but in, yep, but in Crest and Banner of the Stars, they have another type of missile that's not fired from their main guns, and that is, they, they literally call them mines. And what they are, sure. are guided, like, little... They, what they are is missiles that can stop and have reverse thrusters. So you can fire them off, turn them off, and you've created a minefield. And then and any then they can light off their drives again. Yes, as soon as yeah. any any enemy ship comes by, if that they detect, they can turn those rockets back on. Boom. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and in yeah, one the most of our elegant solution to area denial in an environment where which is characterized by nothing but volume, basically. Yep. Yep. And not to not to mention just the the sheer fact of of putting out you know space debris in in space. To create a shrapnel wall, coming for yeah, your, right. Even if they're defeated, they they still propose or they still uh, compose a physical object. Yeah. So that's that's one of the things that I really like about that show because they use these mines in really strategic ways. Like they can fire them mm -hmm. off to like just use them as missiles to like just point direct attack, but like they'll also like lay traps for for uh, for enemy ships as well and it's 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 a it's one of the, the really cool things you can do going into space is, is is stuff like that because space has no gravity <laughs> on space you can't hide from anyone except by being dark and quiet and yep. this accomplishes that in a way yep. that very other very few other kinds of technologies really can Yep, and and we'll we'll go into this in our our stealth episode here before the before the season finale for the space combat. Mm -hmm. But there really isn't any stealth in space. The caveat to that is things like disguise, but also just being really really small. So if you've got a small missile that you can fire off, does it have to have a whole lot of propellant to go really really mm -hmm. far? All it needs is enough to propel itself away from your craft, mm -hmm. stop, wait, detect an enemy ship, and then fire off again. And that can be really small. But yeah, stealth oftentimes, especially in, in space, is a function of time. Yeah. To the amount of time in advance you put something in motion allows yep. you to conceal it a lot more by putting it onto a trajectory slowly and just waiting. Yeah. Or like even you could like put like a like say there's like a, a a big asteroid that you have that comes by your your enemy base every every now and then. You can hide on the dark end side of that asteroid. Place say like some sort of small sensor on the other, mm -hmm. and then fire your missiles off. And as long as they're smart enough, which you know given we're talking about spaceships here, they're probably going to be that smart. 
you can attack your enemy from a place they have no way of retaliating against you because mm -hmm. they can't detect you because you're hiding behind that the asteroid and no sensor on Earth can detect you from there because it's got to go through an asteroid. Yeah, five kilometers of rock and iron or whatever, yeah. depending on. See, the, this kind of this kind of strategy depends mostly on what kind of stuff has already been put into motion at the formation of the solar system. Yeah, how close it orbits together. Um, yep. <laughs> it's uh, the cool thing about space, despite it being so big. When you get solar systems together, like there's always going to be some kind of junk that you can use for something like this. Probably not yeah. going to be exactly what you need, though. Yeah. But also, the cool thing about, like, missiles and stuff like that is, you again, like we talked about in our last episode, like, it's got a payload, which is a hollow cavity that you can stick stuff in. Mm -hmm. And when you have a hollow cavity you can stick stuff in, you can stick a whole bunch of different stuff in that. So it doesn't just have to be, you know, a warhead to destroy other vehicles with. It can be something like... A wild weasel. Or a dazzler. Or chaff. Yeah, or chaff pods. Yeah. Well, and yeah, because when you're talking about, when you're talking about especially a lion weight weapon of the type you're describing, yeah. I mean, it's already pretty expensive in terms, not just of the physical cost, but in like the sophistication of manufacturing involved. Yeah. So what you're really talking about are suicide drone spacecraft at yes. this point. They can get, they can get arbitrarily large. Or um, small. Yeah, or small. Well, and that's the thing. You can have the different, you can have different platforms you can have like your your tiny like you have automatic counter missiles even as part of like your deploying swarm depending on how like how Ooh. expensive you, yeah oh well, here's the thing like if you're running it if you're running it from something like uh from something like uh like uh if you're making decisions for things like uh swarm counter missiles from inside the swarm itself so you have like a couple of large bodies that are running the running ais or just traditional computers you start getting a lot of really cool options when you think about it. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. You could use your minefield not only uh, offensively, but defensively as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and the, it, the field itself is going to need to have some kind of like sensory capability. So by default, yeah. you turn it into a listening post until you use it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could just put like the, the sensors in, in each of the missiles, assuming mm -hmm. they're, they're cheap enough, and sure. then just swarm network all the missiles together. Yeah, yeah. If you've got one, you've got like uh, you've got like a swarm mind of some kind, traditional or or intelligent in any way. Yeah, yeah. it can um, it can just network all of the basic detectors that you have in your missiles into more or less like a virtual telescope array. Yeah. Um, hell, hell, heck, the the missiles themselves don't even need to be all that all that intelligent. You can just have them network nah. back to the ship and have the ship's main computer do all the calculations. Yeah, I mean, presumably, uh, presumably the the parent ship for this would be much better for doing guidance. It really depends on yeah. how close you can be. Like, if you're hiding just on the other side of the of a rock, then yeah, you've got really low signal latency. You can run it all from your ship's main computer. Yeah, but also like that scenario, depending on like the the distance and time to target, um, it's possible that someone might be able to get off the kind of strike that only hits after you've gotten them. So, yeah. like, there's a bunch of different considerations as to, like, what kind of parent vessel you'd want. Yeah. Oh, uh, speaking speaking of, there, there are a couple more uh, defensive measures that we uh, yeah. failed to go over, which <laughs> I've gone over things. on previous episodes, and I, I can't believe I forgot about this, but lasers. Yeah. 
So we've we've gone over main reason you might want to have lasers. <laughs> yeah. Well, lasers lasers are like they're not great at penetration and a lot of people get bummed out by that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was. they have a lot of other uses, like shooting down missiles, which is a, mm-hmm. a big one. Uh, which, of course, you can also use things like SeaWiz uh, for that. But again, we're talking about putting a lot of debris in space, and maybe, maybe you don't want to do that. Just, just saying. But lasers well, might be better any, for you. I want to go back to the defensive onion that you mentioned in the early episodes before I came on. Like any defensive yes. strategy consists of, la- of layers. If I never mm-hmm. need to use my R2D2s to shoot down, like physically shoot down missiles, then one, I'm saving ammo. Yep. And two. Like, I don't have all of the hazards around my ship like you were talking about. Yeah. We're just going to induce Kessler Syndrome for an entire solar system because we're fighting over it. <laughs> oh, God. Space, space, the, the realities of space warfare are absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Just... Well, and one of the things when you, like, I have, because of my background, I have, like, this predilection for focusing on... Um, like the immediate human cost of wars over the past century or so. Longer than that, but that's where my concentration is. Um, and it's characterized, like the really classical, this is basically trite observation at this point, it's characterized by um, fighting getting less personal and faster to the point where, like one of the earliest things I said when I came on this show is like about modern combat is breathtakingly dangerous and if you can be seen, you can be killed by somebody you didn't even know was there. Yeah. And then it only continues to get uh, it gets more more detached and more depersonal the further away you get until you get into space where decisions that were made, like depending on the timescales you're talking about, decisions that were made a century ago by people who have been dead for generations oh, yeah. may have put, say, an unused field of these mines you describe out into an orbit. And suddenly, someone who was able to like backdoor its swarm consciousness is now has a weapon nobody knows that they have everybody knows it's there everyone's ignoring it like these are the kinds of when i think about if i was going to like try to dm a game that was a, a tabletop game or write a short story that was set in these spaces like that's what i'm looking for like um like uh, ideological terrorists or like bored teenagers or maybe like rogue ais maybe limited AIs that aren't really sentient. They're just following corrupted directives. Like anything could take control yeah. of something like this and make it dangerous. That's what I'm looking for. What's the worst thing that could happen? <laughs> oh God. If you had the, if you have like the, the swarm like network th- together, it could, it could, it could get its own consciousness. Like the whole thing just be yeah. one consciousness. Well, and that's, I mean, we say consciousness, but like one, one intelligence, you could have a non-subjective intellect yeah sort of something that doesn't have like because it's unclear what consciousness is really useful for except for uh, providing like a a, like a root override to choose between uh directives when the system is otherwise locked up so depending on how you're writing you're writing or envisioning stories that involve ais you're using them usually to uh to set up like a human conflict scenario in a way that's stripped of its usual context so that you can talk to the the, uh, the readers or the viewers, whatever. You can talk to the audience about something about themselves in a way that's a lot easier for them to understand because it's so removed from the things they're attached to. Yeah. But when you're talking about five or six of these minefields like getting getting like backdoored 
by a rogue AI getting networked together and suddenly that AI getting access to a lot more processing capacity than it was ever designed for. Now we're talking about the situation where you can have something making decisions with goals that aren't desires. And talking about bases like a non non subjective intellect. Very fucking fascinating. I love this shit. That is a, the, yeah, no the go recent Yeah, go recent ahead with science, that. Yeah, recent science fiction speculation uh, about uh the nature of consciousness, the, the potential nature of non conscious uh intellects is getting well it's, it started getting really cool i've mentioned blindsight several times it has a sequel as well um and that's sort of where i started getting into uh hard sci-fi that's about like consciousness and intellect uh but there is uh there's a series by a dude named uh, derek knudskin and i definitely mispronounced that that seems like it's dutch or something but um the entire conceit, like it's a it's a far future uh, human diaspora universe. Um, there aren't aliens, but there are like a bunch of uh, engineered subspecies of humans. One of them was designed with the ability, like, with the goal of eventually having the ability to temporarily turn off their conscious mind, so that their uh, their brains and bodies can be inhabited by a non-subjective intellect, they, a quantum intellect that's capable of observing through cells in their body, their mother are called magnetosomes. It's capable of uh, observing um, reactions like on a, a subatomic level based on sensing forces. Uh, and it can observe quantum superpositions without collapsing them. It's not conscious. Huh. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I thought you like. I read the first book a little bit before I came on this, but it's out to the third book now, and I'm comfortable rec recommending it to you because yeah. I think you'll have a lot less difficulty grappling with the quantum stuff because yeah. you have thought more about it than I have. Well, it sounds it, it sounds like they're going with a Copenhagen interpretation, though. Um. So a lot of it is framed in the Copenhagen interpretation. But like it has, it's it's also fiction. But like it has its own sort yeah. of take on things. Um, I get the feeling that the author would rather maybe have framed it in a different way. But there's not an audience. I mean, there is an audience of people who would understand that. But like, I'm fascinated with this, and I'm barely starting to grapple with like the different interpretations other than Copenhagen. Yeah. Well, I I, I really like the the many worlds interpretation just because. It's it it, it makes it makes, makes the most device. sense. Yeah, oh, it because, makes the most sense to the way that we think about things for sure. Well, um, it, it it doesn't require something like the the collapse of the wave function, which is it's kind of a forced narrative in in a scientific field to have something like that. It's mm -hmm. like the 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 collapse of the wave function to me just seems like us trying to force our will onto onto science, and and that's just not how it works. Well, it's it's a scientific god of the gaps. We yeah. don't we don't understand that. We can't measure it. We're like people who are trying to understand it are grappling with like the limits of, of human cognitive structure. Yeah. In order to in order to be able to describe things like this, you have to. It's like um, it's like uh, it's like high dimensional math, like five plus dimensional math. Like you have to develop an entire symbology in order to represent things that are basically abstract even if even if proven to be like useful theories that that describe 
natural interactions, it won't be a thing that the human mind can just understand because we're embedded in our X number of dimensions, three, four, however many. Yeah. Like, so yeah, we we run up against the limits of the limits of language, which those la- those limits themselves are emergent from the deeper limits of of our oh, cognition. Yeah. Oh, the the limits on language are are absolutely horrible, and well, wow, and we're we're Anglophone native speakers, so it's oh, even yeah. worse for us. Yeah, <laughs> we don't yeah. even have we don't have seventeen different tenses like Russians. We don't have like eighteen different cases like Germanic, like Germanophone family languages. Like, yeah, and it's uh, I think. So I don't know how much of this is the fact that I really own, I'm only comfortable doing recreational like reading and stuff in a- and watching in english but it seems like there's an extent to which the the collective like imagination like the available imagination phase space for science fiction in the english language is limited in a lot of the ways that it deals with things like causality um one of the more interesting things about kaninskin's book is that uh the way that he's able to describe things uh becomes uh eventually it, it, he's able to decouple uh, the temporal progression of causality and uh, or he's able to uh, decouple causality from subjective temporal progression um, he deals with time travel in a way like time tra- uh, time travel is important to the story and he deals with it in a way that's much more interesting than anything I've anything else I've encountered except possibly <laughs> the H.G. Wells idea that you can move your consciousness only and not your body. I found yeah. that cool too, but for the opposite reason. Well, I highly recommend it. I, I have a hard time with, with science, with uh, time travel in, in science fiction, mostly because everybody gets it so very wrong. So very wrong. Like there, I've seen it done decently once, and believe it or not, that was in Avengers Endgame. Oh, I, <laughs> not, oof, not I mind you, <laughs> not, not mind you, the, the Hulk scene where, where they run time through Scott. I don't know what that actually means. But in the, in the depiction of going through the quantum realm and, and doing that, because what you're really doing when you're time traveling I just realized we are way off track here, but I'm going to roll with <laughs> it because I love missiles. time travel. Yeah. So, so what you're really doing is you're going, you're not really traveling through time, kind of. You're going to another universe. You're going through time, yes. but when you do that, like all the rules of the universe stay the same. And under the many worlds interpretation, like the instant you touch the past, you create trillions of branching universes and well, yes. without being able to navigate the quantum foam you know the the the, the actual states of the universe as as they evolve mm. like they do in in endgame you're not getting back to the same universe you got to even if you get it very very close like control everything like it's not going to be the same because it's a new quantum state Sure, so, and even if you had the ability to navigate the quantum foam precisely, there's right. still a chance of of mistakes, which are exactly. not really mistakes. In one of the things, one of the things that's sort of missed over in uh, 
or is jumped over in narrative like stories that involve the many worlds interpretation is that for every reality that's close enough that your dimensional mirror can get like a lock onto it and allow you to go through like there there's literally an infinite number of realities where like the something happened during the big bang and matter didn't form in the same way yeah um or like the the large hadron collider actually collapsed the universe like uh, various things various uh, things went wrong or differently i mean the the large hadron collider i mean well okay technically technically anything under quantum mechanics with enough is 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 possible but the large hadron collider is not going to create a, a wormhole that'll suck us all in oh, yeah. because of Hawking you radiation. Call it the large hadron collider, but it is not yeah. big enough to do that. <laughs> well, the the thing is, like when you create a, a wormhole like that, like they're going to be really, really small, which means they're going to evaporate in nanoseconds. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, under the interpretation that uh, creating a wormhole in a particle accelerator could create the conditions for a new universe. Yeah. The, true. In a in a lay person's term the event that caused our universe is a lot stronger and a lot longer than the ones that we're going to create inside of yeah. it by accident. Yeah. Until we start really fucking with some stuff. Yep. Um, the dude who wrote uh, Forever War, Haldeman, um, he has, I've been getting into his stuff a little bit lately, um, he has, uh, it's set in a different narrative universe. It's called Forever Peace. But, um, the central conceit here, and I am ruining a relatively old science fiction book for you and everybody else. The central conceit is that um, human post-scarcity tech is starting to take off, writing across the world, sort of. Political uh, political things are keeping it from not doing that. But the post Oh, so it's a contemporary been, piece. Eh. Post-scarcity <laughs> tech has been dropped off around uh, one of the moons of Jupiter and it's uh, it's been programmed there's nanoverges out there that are creating machines that are assembling um, it's creating a particle accelerator that uh, that runs in the orbit of the moon uh, so it's creating the largest one but it's like possible to that's possible to build and it turns out that turning this on is going to create an, uh, an effect with the amount of strength or energy that uh, created our universe or one that's strong enough that it's going to obliterate local space time and that's like one of the things that he goes back and forth in, like explaining and talking about. It's um, it was written in like the the nineties, so it's a it's a much coarser approach to things like high energy physics than you see in more recent hard sci fi. Yeah. But it's it's an interesting idea that you'd have to get. Basically, we're starting to build uh, mega structures, we're creating mega structures yeah. that create themselves, and that's what allows us to break the universe. So if they turn this thing, scale of planets. so if they turn this thing on, it'll create a black hole, but it'll destroy the universe or their or their solar system, right? Yeah, essentially, yeah. Um, it's already it's already on and working when it gets to it, but the machines are continuing to build it out so that it can create higher and higher energy states because that's the whole point. Gotcha. And they can just keep doing that because they're powered by the radiation coming off of Jupiter. And they're just harvesting materials from the moon and from the accretion belts. They're doing, basically building an entire drone space fleet that runs itself out there just to create a particle accelerator. Was my impression. Oh and wow! Yeah, once it gets to a certain uh, a certain energy level, um, which it's approaching in the time frame of the book, then when they turn it on to do its normal thing, it's instead going to create the kind of black hole that it can't contain, the kind of wormhole that collapses into a black hole. It's unclear, really, whether it's going to destroy the entire universe or just our corner of it, but that doesn't so much matter when we're stuck here. 
Okay, I know that sounds bad, but hear me out. <laughs> Black hole. Okay, what if the stars uh? are actually better off without us? <laughs> 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 it wasn't uh <laughs> It wasn't an accident or it was an accident, but it was also an act of uh, an act of uh, benevolence and mercy from humanity to the rest of the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. One of the cooler things, just jumping back to Blindsight, we're talking about Jupiter. Um, one of the cooler things, its initial uh, premise, the aliens they're going out to talk to, um, their spacecraft is uh, its like a four or six times Super Jovian object, mm -hmm. but they have like basically seems like they they have the ability to take this substellar mass and like manipulate its gravatics and magnetics so directly that it is their spacecraft they're riding like a substellar uh substellar mass around that's their fucking drive um they uh they create torsion flares on it to to create thrust fucking wild story <laughs> oh wow this is in the first chapter they described this well the first the first chapter the first chapter proper where the crew is on the ship and, and coming out to talk to the aliens. Yeah. Um, okay, so we were... Let's skip back to active defense systems. Yes. You're talking about la using lasers to overheat the electronics. Yep. Uh, and possibly also as dazzlers. Yeah, so there's there, that's actually uh, uh, the second thing there is any missile that's optically guided, either be it you know microwave, radio, laser all just light waves and if that's your your guidance method uh you can always you know just point a big bright flashlight in that wavelength and and block the the tracking signal but sure, what yeah. happens if your missiles are smart they are they can actually track something like that like a um uh, what's the word uh harm like yeah. harm missiles. So Yeah. Which is radiation seeking missiles. Yep. So that's when you pull out the big guns, the actual lasers designed to shoot missiles down. So missiles being very light, fast weapons can't have a whole lot of armor on them for obvious reasons. So you can design a laser that will blast them out of the sky, basically overheat the internals, blow it up. So I mean, that, just get it hot enough to take the temper out of yep. one of like uh, one of the joints somewhere. You yep. don't need to actually destroy the whole platform. You just need to make it incapable of doing its job the way it's designed to. Yep. Whether that's it can't seek you because it can't see you, or it can't seek you because it has no attitude control. It doesn't really matter. It matters yep. later anyway. And again, we're talking about in space, whereas on Earth, a missile's flying through the air, and that air going past it's going to cool it down. Well. If you've got a missile that's out in space, there is nothing in contact with it to yeah, cool it the down. Classic process, problem of uh, having heat control in, in space. the coldest environment imaginable. Yep, that and that's that's a that's a thing that I really wish sci-fi would would get right is is what happens in space when with with just like biological entities or heat capacitance, because you never see the struggle to get rid of heat. In 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 science in science fiction, and that is your primary concern, which, you know, again, that's going to help us shoot down the missiles, 
But that also brings us back to lasers being good primary weapons. Heat up a spaceship enough and you will cook the things inside. Yeah. It's so that simple. Overheating. Yeah. So, but that's that's getting off into territories of intersectionality between all these systems that we'll be talking about on our uh, space warfare episode. Mm-hmm. So I think I think this is actually a good place to end it here, unless you want to uh, add anything. Well, we um, we basically barely mentioned uh, our duty twos, which are that's the current DoD term for things that shoot down like missiles and projectiles oh, coming yeah. in. They don't need to be. I don't have to go over them too much because it's pretty pretty clear. You shoot, you physically shoot an object, then that yep. will either deflect it or destroy it or both. Um, but yeah, that just gets us through protection uh, systems. Was there? There was another major topic you wanted to go into, yeah? Uh, we've done propulsion. Someday I'm going to get better at taking notes. <laughs> yeah, I, I should. Pr- I should really start doing uh, outlines again. Well, our uh, classic, um, our classic pattern is to get through quite a bit of uh, of recording. Yep. Two thirds of it on the topic, one third of it about speculative shit, and then forget a major thing that we went to go into. Yeah. Yep, that is, that is exactly our pattern. <laughs> Which I, I like. I like that, so... Oh, no, I mean, yeah, it's great. That's what makes... It's it's spontaneous because of that, but also, like, I wouldn't mind yeah. at least getting in, like... I can't remember what it is now. Was it guidance? I think, I think it was guidance system, but... But guidance, yeah. No, I, yeah, it had to have been... Well, we have... Yeah, because active defenses, a lot of that has to do with fighting yeah. guidance. Well, I think oh. we I think we've gone over guidance a lot on on the very various different topics, but I'll I'll, I'll talk, t- uh, touch on it briefly here, uh, mostly because I'm not all that well versed on the different missile systems. Uh, but mm-hmm. in in general, there are two different categories of guidance systems on missiles, called active and semi-active. So kind of like kind of like uh, engineering terms. <laughs> yeah, kind of like uh, semi-automatic and automatic uh, rifles. So one is you have to paint a laser on a target, and the laser will follow that target. Um, so that is kind of the most numerous of the missile guidance systems. Uh, stuff like the laser that can be NEM. Yeah, lasers are just the easiest, especially in yeah. The atmosphere. Yeah, there's there's like some of them use infrared, some of them use uh, radio. Some use actual visible light lasers, you know, stuff like that. Your um, infrared is going to be your standard painting yeah. laser for a variety of reasons. But one of the main ones is because every infantry unit in, well, in like a U.S. partner parody yeah. uh, situation, every infantry squad has every individual soldier equipped with an infrared laser already for different reasons. Oh, wait a minute. All of them? Everybody? How else are you going to shoot at night, bro? Oh wait! You That's, can use those to guide the missiles too. No, you use it for use it for your rifle. Your rifle has got oh, gotcha, a gotcha. laser sight, and you actually cool. The cool thing about night shooting is um, you can like hip fire your rifle, and while it's not as accurate because yeah. you're not using the kinesthetics right, um, you're aiming just as much as you would be if you're aiming down the down the, the sights. Yeah, but those um, those IR lasers are all working on frequencies that uh, things like uh, JDAMs, Joint Deployable Air Munitions. Um, it will automatically home in on. 
Um, really? I was not involved in this operation, but my platoon went out and uh, laser designated a house so that we could call in artillery on it. It took uh, two days to destroy this house because the Air Force kept missing it the first day. <laughs> we had to call in uh, guided rocket artillery on the second day. That is absolutely amazing. That is yeah, absolutely no, amazing. I was out on the first uh, the first uh, patrol where we found it, and like we were watching from inside our trucks, hungered down as uh, these two jets. They were doing like the, the practice gun runs on it, and they cut up the house pretty fucking badly with those cannons. Holy fucking shit! Yeah. But then they did uh, they did rocket attacks, and they dropped a JDAM. The rockets uh, all missed. There were three of them, and they dropped a JDAM that didn't go off. It. <laughs> I used to have the video. I lost uh, my camera was taken, but um, I used to have a video where you can see a frame of like the sort of blur the JDAM is going through the roof with like blurred like uh, debris coming out of it, and there's just nothing. The house just sits there. <laughs> so we created a local uh, a local informant got paid to tell us this is a cash house, like insurgents are using it to store explosives and it's booby trapped and the dude came out and showed the interpreter like these are the booby traps i'm not going to go any further so like okay we'll just destroy it and then we added unexploded ordinance to it at the end of that day <laughs> in addition to it being a booby trapped cash house wait it wasn't even fully destroyed no the jdam went in and didn't blow up it was dud <laughs> unexploded jdam in there <laughs> i'm definitely not going in that house now <laughs> This is one oh of my, my favorite God. army stories. It took us two days to destroy an unoccupied house. <laughs> well, to be fair, the army, the ar it was an army artillery unit that finally managed to fucking blow it up by dropping laser-guided missiles right into it, and they actually went off, unlike the JTAM. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, which actually brings us to our, our other uh, guidance systems, uh, which are... First of all, GPS guidance, which is... Oof, yeah. Oof. It, it is exactly what it sounds like. Don't do this. Yeah, it, it, it's, One it's bad. One weird trick, which Doctors Without Borders hospitals hate. Yeah. Uh, but the last one is the active guidance systems, which are what most people would be familiar with if they play video games. It's your typical lock-on, fire... It tra the missile will track its target, usually because it's a smart missile, and it can identify them. And yeah, it just fires off. Usually stuff like the uh, javelin will arc up into the air and then come down mm -hmm. on a tank. That way it'll you know go through the, the top armor. But all of these, like the semi-active and active, they all do it by the same method, which is they basically have a computer... Which brings me back to story time with the development of the first guided missiles. Oh, so oh, oh we've got. I can't wait to see which of these stories you're gonna you're gonna use. Oh, oh, you know what? We're only at an hour. Let's uh, let's go through a couple of them because this is all so Nazis. We're get to the birds. Oh, oh yes. Oh, we're definitely okay. getting to the birds. I love all the right. birds. So, I can't remember who it was that actually did this. It was either the Nazis or us Americans. But the first guidance system for a missile was, I think it was either pigeons or doves. It was pigeons, and it was us. It was the yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, did we do both the, the flying B-2 and the, the, the bird bombs? 
Um, we oh, developed we... the bird bombs, but it turned out that they were way more effective ways to do guidance. I don't think we ever actually used them. Yeah. Well, I mean, y- yeah. Um, we didn't do bat bombs. That was the that was Imperial Japan. Yeah. And anyway, so the the reason that I bring up the bird bombs is because they work exactly the same as the way the missile guidance system does on something like a laser designated uh, bomb, and that is the pigeons were trained to recognize the target and then peck at the screen. And then where that pigeon pecked is where is would tell the missile how to correct. So if it was, you know, two units off to the left, it would steer the missile back off to the left. And it would just keep the missile in that cent- keep the uh, the target in the center just like that. And that's the same right. way that these guided missiles do that. Is just you know, looking for the, the just pecks at the screen. Well, it, it doesn't really peck at the screen, but it, yeah, it a... takes a picture of it, sees where the laser guided system is, uh, references that to the center of the screen, and then corrects. So now, yeah, that's how they told us the javelin clues work. That's the the most personal experience I have with guidance systems. Yep. So let's get back to the next method of guidance, which is now pretty much defunct almost entirely. And that's manual guidance. So yeah. there were several different manual guided missiles. Um, yeah, TV operated. Germans got kind of actually fairly decent in this regard. But the one that I really want to talk about. that helpful to them. Yep. Well, unfortunately for them, fortunately for everyone else. Yeah. Uh, but the one that I want to talk about is the giant B... I think it was a B-25 that we turned into a bomb. Uh, sent over to destroy a the V-3 building. And, yeah. So, let's get into this story. Wait, so, I thought the V-3 was accidentally destroyed by strategic bombs going into one of the ports. Oh, that's... The, yes, we're, we'll, we'll get there. Okay. okay. So, the, the, our story begins... With a Kennedy, I can't, I can't remember what his oh. name was, but one of one of the Kennedy, that one of JFK's, matter. yeah, yeah, basically one of his one of his relatives. The United States was experimenting with guided missiles and guidance systems, stuff like that. You know, of course, the 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 best guidance systems of the war would turn out to be Japanese, but that's kind of a different story that we'll go into on another day. But I'm very we interested saw, in that now. <laughs> oh, have you have you not heard of the Kamikaze uh, specialty bombers? Oh, yeah. Best guidance. Yes, I it mean, turns out that there's nothing there's nothing on Earth that's better at that we know of anyway at both communicating with humans and integrating 3D spaces than humans. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so our story starts with a Kennedy. So, we were trying to basically do all this mad scientist shit. Like, we we should do an episode on all the mad science shit we were doing. It was open season in a way that defies the belief. Um, The the German side, like the Nazi side of this, only seems crazier because of how much fewer resources they had and, like, how obviously doomed all their projects were. Right. Like, bat bombs. Like, bat bombs that would have been effective as the nuclear bombs that, that, that we hit japan with so uh back to the mad scientists at uh i think it was 
was it DARPA? Was DARPA around then, or was this before yeah, DARPA? I don't think it, I don't know if that was actually formally a thing during World War II. Yeah. Anyway, so our scientists come up with the brilliant idea of attaching a TV to a B-25 and put pilots in a bomber behind it that will guide it into a target. Yeah. So, let's back up a little bit to the target they they would eventually select for this crazy apparatus. The... And I'm not going to pronounce this name, but it was it's German for the high-pressure pump. It's a cannon called the V3, and it was it basically set to shell London. And it was just like it sounds, it was one of the long-range wonder weapons that Hitler was trying to uh, you know assault London with. The way this yeah, worked... One of my favorite of them, because it's, it's both it, a rocket and a cannon. Yes, so it's basically the first rocket-assisted cannon that ever made, and the way it works is it's it's just like a cannon, but it fires rockets. But more than that, the barrel is so long that along the barrel you have to have booster shots just to keep it going. <laughs> That's how insane this gun was, and it was destroyed, I think, by accident by one of the. Um, one of the British bombers that was, I think, mm-hmm. destroying a a, a, a nearby uh, dam, I think. And oh, they had spotted they had spotted that the V three complex was something. Yeah. And they were running out of things to strategically bomb in Germany that wasn't just the same neighborhoods over and over again. Yeah. Basically, so they they sent a formation of Lancasters after it and accidentally wiped out this ridiculous fucking cannon base. <laughs> it worked. Words do not describe how absolutely ridiculous this thing was. Like, uh, let me let me look up the actual length of the cannon. Give me one second here, because it was absolutely yeah. insane. Well, one of my favorite um, one of my favorite like facts about the V three cannon barrels is that uh, you had literally, eventually, hundreds of little wood chocks that they were using to change the elevation slightly that they would like hammer into different points. Because you couldn't, like, the barrels, they could move around, but you couldn't really articulate them manually. Like yeah. You said, they're so long. They have these extra segments in them that have that have to be packed with explosives so that they can go off in succession. It's overall, I mean, it's the epitome of a prototype facility, especially yeah. for a strategic weapon. Um, if you, once you had built this, you could then build another one, uh, like, 40 or 100 miles or whatever, further inland that does everything better. Yeah. But barrel length on it. Building this when you were losing the war. Barrel length on it is four hundred and thirty feet. Jesus Christ! Four hundred and thirty uh, feet. I wonder if Saddam's gun was going to be longer than that or not. Uh, that is a good question. What was his gun called? Uh, it's going to take me a little bit to look up the details on it, but um, <laughs> okay. Uh, the the gross tale is that um. Uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq starts a super weapon program to create the largest cannon ever built. Um, the barrel was fabricated. I don't think it was ever assembled. It was fabricated in three parts. Uh, oh, did they actually the idea... build part of it? Oh my god. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, the idea was it was going to be an anti-satellite cannon. Um, you would have to be like built into terrain in Iraq and you would have to like 
you have to you, you would have to basically rebuild the berms around it to like change it to, to be able to attack different orbits. They're going to fire these uh, these shells that would proximity detonate, um, of, and like this sort of like space gel would spray out. And satellites are super delicate. You just have to be able to t hit it with like the edge of your your gel cloud, and you'll have ruined it. Yeah. Um, and it was. Uh, I believe the barrels, the barrel segments were being uh, imported under the theory that they were uh, they were like pipe sections for oil drilling, but it turned out that instead it was a cannon designed to lift things into space. Um, yes. Oh, that is insane. meters or five hundred and twelve feet if it had been assembled and fired. Oh wow! It would have been larger than the V three. Oh my god. God in the V three. It was also not so rocket insane. assisted. I don't think. Really, you're you're gonna build a gun that big and not make it rocket assisted? Like really? Well, so based on they never like they never assembled and test fired it. Based on my understanding of the of the metallurgy and the forces involved, um, seems like they would have had to add something like that. Uh, but it's unclear. Probably would have been a rocket assist on the payload itself that goes off after it leaves the barrel. Just because they had already, they already had the, the the barrel and the chamber built, it would have been able to modify it easily. At some point, you just got to ask yourself, do I just want to get some cruise missiles? Well, and because you're Saddam Hussein, the answer is yes, I would like that, but I'm not going to be able to. <laughs> True. The people who the people who wouldn't who would be willing to sell Saddam Hussein cruise missiles because they're not currently in a conflict with him would be the people that he would use them on if there wasn't an America. So yeah. they would rather not. The, one of the yep. things, one of the things, okay, the ease with which we dismantled Iraq and like the 20 years before that, that uh, the, the U S and NATO and the UN just like dick them around really obfuscate how like dangerous is a local power not really a regional power but a local power to the other regional powers in the area um iraq was uh like iraq despite having substantially less of the population almost defeated iran in an invasion uh and was able to defend themselves from the counter invasion with uh, i don't know ease isn't the right word a plum isn't the right word, but they did it more effectively than you, know, than you would think, due partially to some like batshit wild stuff and also U.S. intervention yeah. with chemical weapons and targeting data. Yep. Um. So by the time by the time the super gun is uh, like is is being like planned and constructed, uh, the uh, the post first uh, first the post Persian Gulf invasion. Asian sanctions are like really biting and Iraq is never going to be a problem for anyone except us. We're making it our problem. Um, it's not going to be a problem for Iran or any of the nations uh, in the area, but if they had put together this cannon and and test fired it, like even if they'd managed to hire it like, to hide it until the point, like once they start actually putting like projectiles, ballistic projectiles into orbit. Oh yeah. It's, it's going to be impossible gone. to hide. And yeah, it's so gone. We're going to do we're going to do a post nine eleven Iraq invasion, except right as soon as this thing starts firing. And I'm like, ethically, I'm opposed to military intervention, 
but from like a real politics standpoint, it's hard. It's hard to look at a state like Iraq getting a capability like that and not and not see it immediately being stomped by someone definitely yeah. involving the United States. Probably would have been a lot easier to get other people on board for it. Yeah. I mean, fuck. We, we could have done we could have done an entire like second round of Sykes Pico on Iraq and made it even worse. <laughs> but and all that could have happened like in the late nineties and then nine eleven would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's oh, history man it's not better <laughs> no it's not <laughs> it doesn't get better nope and with that note I think I will call it here for the night that's extremely fair yep and you guys have a great night and we will be back uh, what is our next episode on uh, shields oh energy shields oh that's going to be a fun one Oh, that's cool. But energy yep. shields, energy shields for deflecting physical things, energy shields for deflecting non-physical things. Uh, all of the above. Um, are we are, are we counting things like uh, things like active jamming as a kind of energy shield then? Because it's an energy field. Yep. We're also okay, going to cool. be talking about the uh, plasma windows and like actual, like literal, literal, as they exist now, force fields. And with that, I'm going to call it here, and y'all have a wonderful night. Love and solidarity.